Well, it's a, a great treat to be here, <laughs> and uh, I'll let the microphone get moderated. If I raise my voice, I'm really going to do some damage, I think. Thank you, Hezekiah. Uh, we are very grateful to be here. Uh, we are also full of hope, um, very thankful for the faithful ministry of the Word that's taken place uh, through the decades uh, here at Carriage Lane. and. Uh, we have listened to many of the sermons, certainly not all of them, but uh, have listened to several uh, on our, in our preparation to come. I haven't ever been invited uh, in to uh, pick up in a series that was begun by others, uh, but the Word is the Word, and I'm very thankful for it. Uh, when I get into a pulpit, I'm always mindful of the promise uh, in Isaiah that God's Word will not return to Him void. It'll always accomplish the purpose for which he sends it. So uh, we're, again, uh, thrilled to be here. Um, We are in the midst of this uh, writer's, preacher's exposition of Jesus' superior priesthood. That's where I understand uh, Hebrews 6 to be. Um, The following, that that is following the teaching about Jesus as superior to the angels uh, and to Moses. In uh, and, and my understanding of the, of the letter or the sermon, uh, we're making kind of our way to chapter 12, uh, where we are instructed to fix our eyes on Jesus, uh, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the way that I read Hebrews, and you probably do too, uh, it's written to a troubled people. And so it can be said that when your life is troubled, Uh, maybe even more to the point when your life is falling apart, uh, that you should fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And so, as a good teacher does, he is giving us the long path uh, up to that point in chapter 12. So, uh, let me read uh, this passage that I'm going to be preaching on and then see if we can dive into it and see what God will give us out of it. For when God made a promise to Abraham, I'm starting in verse 13, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly To the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Well, I just want to kind of plod through and then try to make some larger points and see if it can be uh, helpful uh, in the end. Uh, Verses 13 to 15 are a huge understatement Uh, in service of the main point that the writer is trying to communicate here. Uh, Abraham is brought up in light of the word promise in verse uh, 12. 
The writer is saying, yeah, I don't want you to be sluggish, but imitators rather of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And it's almost as though he says, while we're on the subject of promises, or now that I've introduced the idea of promises, let's take a look at Abraham, who is the definitive inheritor of the promises. Abraham received many promises. Uh, More specifically, he received two promises uh, several times. Uh, His first promise, the initial promise, was a promise of progeny, that he would bear children and become a great nation uh, on the face of the earth. And through that nation, God would bless every other nation on the face of the earth. That's the essential promise that he made to Abraham. The second promise, which kind of follows on that, is that he would give him a land in which that progeny could thrive. Both of those promises come in chapter 12 at the beginning of Abraham's uh, journey. Uh, After some adventures and misadventures in chapters 13 and 14, uh, in which Melchizedek actually appears, uh, the promises are restated in chapter 15 in response to Abraham's questions. Abraham goes to the Lord and says, Lord, it's great that I've won this victory. It's great that I'm thriving. It's great that I'm prospering, but I don't have a son. I don't have uh, any offspring. So what good is any of it? God takes him outside and shows him the stars of the sky, reiterates the promise. This is what your offspring are going to look like. And it's said there in verse 6 of chapter 15 uh, that Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. Tiny little verse. If you were reading Genesis 15, as a disinterested scholar or as a student in a university, you would skip right over that verse. Uh, we'll I'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but the Apostle Paul uses that little expression uh, as one of the cornerstones by which to explain uh, how the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ results in a salvation that is by faith alone and not by works. But after Abraham says that, um, This deep, mysterious event takes place. Um, He believes God, but he says, how am I to know? And and the Lord enacts a covenant uh, with him. I'm going to get back to this in a minute, but uh, again, this is kind of a cornerstone of what the Christian faith is all about. All human instinct is toward works. All human instinct is toward self-justification, and the apostle Paul will say, on the basis of this verse in Genesis, on the basis of this episode in Abraham's life, no. Especially he says that, as Jesus did, to religious people who imagine that they're impressing God as they impress their friends with their good works and stellar theology. Now again, I'm going to get back to this distinction in a minute. But the next breathtaking event in Abraham's life, in which that covenant that God established in Genesis 15 is reaffirmed and cemented and hammered home is in chapter 22, from which the writer of Hebrews is quoting. So that's why I'm saying this is a massive understatement. The writer of Hebrews simply says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, you know, we need to go back and see what's the larger context of that? What's going on in that? Now, 
The passage was already read uh, from chapter 22. Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac, his only son. The story is exquisite, and it's gut-wrenching. And at the last second, seemingly, the sacrifice of Isaac is averted with a substitute. And God says, well, I've, I've seen now that your heart is with me. I've seen that you were willing to sacrifice Isaac. And again, the promise is reasserted, although this time with a vow attached to it. Uh, the quote from Genesis 22 that was already read, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So that's the larger context behind these brief verses 13 to 15. Verse 16 simply states what we all know. In order to emphasize and underscore a promise... In order to emphasize or underscore an assertion, a statement of intention, uh, people take an extra step. It's kind of what we do. Uh, our yes is not usually yes, our no is not usually no. When we really mean business, you know, we need to knuckle down and we need to say, I really mean it. And so in legal matters, we sign contracts. Uh, we get signatures notarized. Uh, some professions require vows, legal profession, medical, uh, political office is always accompanied by a vow, a promise. When you go to court, you have to swear uh, to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. In ecclesiastical matters, uh, we take membership vows. Uh, elders and deacons take ordination vows to uphold the spiritual health of the church. We take vows when we marry we take vows to help parents raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I remember when I was training uh, officers one time, uh, I, I, a man unfamiliar with the confession, unfamiliar with Reformed theology, noticed that there was an entire chapter in the Westminster Confession devoted to lawful oaths. And he said, what in the world is this all about? And he told me years later that it became his uh, favorite chapter uh, in the confession with the repetition uh, it was a young congregation and there were a lot of babies with the repetition more times than once a month uh, to promise uh, to assist these parents uh, in the nurture, uh, the Christian nurture of their children. Um, so we take vows in the church. Uh, so you understand what a vow is. Now amazingly, and this is what the writer wants to draw our attention to, in one instance... God, who does not need to take a vow because his word is always sure, God doesn't lie, he never misleads, but amazingly, in one instance, here in Genesis 22, God makes a vow. And then verses 17 and 18, the first half of 18, show us in part the heart of God. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, and let me just stop there for a second. Uh, as a side issue, and I think this is a big deal, I've, I've picked up a tome recently that I think uh, 
promises to be of great benefit to the church for those who can read it and uh, embrace it and kind of sink their teeth into it. Uh, It's a book called Biblical Critical Theory. Uh, The second chapter of that, I was kind of amazed to find out uh, that on the second page of that, there is a diagram from a former professor at my seminary uh, that I don't think anyone who did not graduate from my seminary has ever heard of before. And I remember reading this and calling out to my wife, T, get in here, you got to see this. Uh, Dr. Van Til's diagram, big circle, little circle with a hard and fast line in between. And Dr. Van Til used that to demonstrate what he called the profound, irreducible distinction between God and man. Now, this needs, I think, to be unpacked more. It needs to be delved into uh, with greater thought. Uh, But the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning… God created in the heavens and the earth, well, it could be unpacked for weeks, but at the least it means this, that God is entirely distinct from his creation. And that's not something we ordinarily think about. We think of God in the same realm as his creation. But it is central to Christianity that we understand a creator-creature distinction. God being entirely distinct from his creation, not a part of his creation, puts us in the predicament of not being able to know God or a thing about God unless he reveals himself to us. Now, everybody can take the word God on their lips, and everybody has an idea. If you went door to door in your neighborhood… If you did a survey and asked people what they thought about God, everybody would have an opinion about God. Uh, They might say, I don't believe in him. And of course, the the good follow-up to that, if you're a Christian, is tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in him either. Uh, But everybody's got an opinion about God. I like to think that God is like this. My understanding is that God is like this. But we are absolutely incapable through our own devisings and through our own imagination to figure out God. We don't have the ability or even the capacity. And that's not because we're sinners. Although being sinful exacerbates that problem ten times out. But even if we were perfect, even if we were at our very best without sin, if you can imagine that, we would not know God unless He speaks. We wouldn't know him. And again, these are big implications to be teased out in a Sunday school class, but I want to start right here. When you read a verse in the Bible that tells you about something that God desires or something explicitly about his purposes, you want to pay very close attention. You want to hold your breath in a sense because this is really important. So here's what the verse says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. I don't don't know how to emphasize this more strongly than the way it's written here. God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, 
and that's you and me if you've put your trust in Christ, God desires. It's one of the things He wants. It's one of the things He purposes to show you more convincingly the unchangeable character of His purpose. So, if we stretch this out a little bit, God took an oath to Abraham. Again, God doesn't need to take an oath. He doesn't need to swear by anything. doesn't need to swear by himself because every word of his is sure and true. But because he wanted to make this known to you, give you strong encouragement, he took an oath to assure you and me of his unchangeable character and purpose. He will not be thwarted. Nothing can stay him. He hasn't lost touch. He hasn't forgotten. I'm I'm often in my own life in the position of asking the Lord, have you forgotten? Have you overlooked me? Have you forgotten to pay attention? And yet here, in giving this oath to Abraham, God wants to make known to you and to me the unchangeable character of of his purpose. One gifted preacher has this long soliloquy on the kingship of God, and it has always rung in my ears. He says, you cannot impeach him, and he's not going to resign. Unthwartable. He's never missed a beat. Everything is moving according to his purpose. The Apostle Paul makes much of this in his explosion of praise in the first chapter of Ephesians. Every spiritual blessing in Christ according to the purpose of His will, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, I think it helps to take a step back and remember that He's writing to people whose lives are coming apart. I don't know if you know such people. I've got a a couple of good friends right now whose lives are coming apart, uh, who are in such despair, and I with them. Uh, unimaginable injustice has descended on them. And T and I pray daily. We are in agony about this. We're angry about it. In one case, a guy that we really love. In fact, I've got a photograph. Of, uh, that he and his wife gave to me when I performed their wedding, and it's sitting up on our bookshelf. His life is coming apart. Not, not, not the entirety of it, but in very significant ways. And so it helps me, in, it helps me give context to this when I, I look at this and say, that's to whom this is being written. You know, someone who has uh, fallen apart someone who has had injustice perpetrated, someone for one reason or another. I I don't know the family who lost their son uh, this week, but uh, there is nothing more bitter than for a parent to lose a child. And it is to to folks like that 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 the the writer of Hebrews is writing uh, when he says... We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. 
So the main point of the passage, the main point of the passage is simply God. Main point of the passage is who God is and what he has done in order to give you whose lives have been turned upside down strong encouragement. That's the main point in the middle of this larger understanding of Jesus as the great high priest. That's what this passage is communicating. And the end of this verse 18, we who have fled for refuge, carries some emotional, deeply personal weight. We just sang it in the song, although when we sing it in a well-known song, we tend to kind of skip it. Uh, But when you flee for refuge, well, something, I, I would say that those who have fled for refuge are those whose lives are in danger. Uh, those who are in, in a lot of trouble. Now, baseline, I think that we can step back and say this is certainly true of every Christian who, recognizing his or her sin, recognizing the condemnation that justly comes upon that sin, flees to Jesus and his atoning sacrifice and his powerful resurrection uh, in order to avert the wrath of God. Now, baseline, that's true. It's more true when you recognize your sin. It's more true when you are accosted by your sin and it hits you hard. But baseline, that's true. But it extends to every hardship in which you have to get on your knees. Fleeing to him for refuge. And as we understand it, we'll read a little bit more later in the, in the, in the book... Uh, These folks are in dire straits. They've had persecution fall on them, and they are driven to their knees. And again, that's a good place to be. And we're kind of in this weird conundrum where we, we manufacture our lives and structure our lives so as to make sure that we never have to get on our knees. But then we find when we've been driven to our knees that we're in the place where God wants us. We're in the place where strong encouragement is necessary and it is given when we see the way that God is determined to fulfill his promises and goes about doing that. We get to this in chapter 12 where Paul says, endure all hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. All hardship. I often think of hardship as a disruption in my life. I think of hardship as something in my craziest imagination, that God has not desired, that has caught him by surprise, or that is indicative of his neglect. But the writer is going to say, again, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but that hardship comes from God, and the only way that you can appreciate it is to appreciate the tenacity of uh, the fulfillment of his promises. You know, for these Hebrews, it was persecution, but again, it's all hardship. I'll read a passage at the end from Archibald Alexander, uh, but he, he says at one point, uh, for your greater growth in piety, uh, some of you will be cast into the furnace of affliction. And he mentions sickness, bereavement, the bad conduct of children and relatives, loss of property or of reputation and all kinds of other things that God will visit upon you in order to advance your piety. 
So before we get to the last two verses, I want to back up a little bit and I want to consider a little bit more uh, deeply Abraham. Uh, Abraham looms large in the gospel. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed when reading Romans that, that Paul kind of makes a beeline after his great exposition of the gospel in the first three chapters, uh, that in chapter four he says, let's take a look at Abraham and see what we can learn from him. The same thing happens in Galatians. Uh, so the two principal letters that the apostle writes in order to <clears throat> explain the details of the gospel and in order to, order to repudiate its counterfeits, uh, he gets into Abraham. Um, Paul makes Abraham's faith central to both of those letters. Now, these two events that I've just talked about in Abraham's life, both pretty point pretty explicitly to Jesus. Uh, if you're not aware of this methodology, and I'm sure that most of you are completely aware of this methodology, um, Jesus is the object of most, if not everything, that takes place in the Old Testament. Uh, so, when uh, in chapter 15, when God takes a self-maledictory oath, indicating that he will take on the curse, that he will take on the doom of humanity, that's just what Jesus does when he's on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, go back and look at Genesis 15 later. It's a, it's a mysterious, wild, dark event where animals are cut in pieces. It's a classic second millennium suzerainty covenant enactment ceremony. Uh, and, and what's supposed to happen is that the two people making the covenant walk between the parts of the animals. And they say, may this and worse happen to me if I violate the terms of our covenant. But in that chapter, mysteriously and wondrously, it is only God who passes between uh, the parts. So God makes in that covenant a self-imprecatory oath saying that he'll take on the curse. Now, of course, that's fulfilled in Jesus. In chapter 22, son is to be sacrificed and a substitute takes his place. And at Calvary, Jesus is both the only son and he's also the substitute. So that's pointing to him. Now, there's an ocean to unpack in those two events. But God's determination to keep his promises is the theme not only of this little section of Hebrews, but of the whole Bible. God made those promises to Abraham and that everything else that unfolds in the rest of the Old Testament is in service to God's fulfilling those promises. It really is breathtaking to see how God keeps his promises through every obstacle and every failure of his people. I follow the uh, McShane Bible reading. I don't know if you're familiar with that calendar. Uh, but this morning it had me reading in Genesis the passage where Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers who had sold him into slavery. And he's weeping, and they're weeping, and he drives all the Egyptians out of the room because he doesn't want them to see him weeping. And, uh, and he cries out to his brothers and says, you know, don't worry about the evil that you brought upon me because God intended to save you God intended to keep his promise. God intended to save the children of Abraham. And thus, here I am, ready to welcome you and ready to 
help you survive for the next five years of the famine. That, that happens all the time in the Old Testament. And that's the, that's the drumbeat of the Old Testament is God fulfilling his promises. Now, there's another thing going on in the Old Testament as well as in the human heart. Uh, the reason that Abraham, another reason that Abraham looms large in the gospel is that the covenant that God makes with him is unilateral, unlike the covenant with Moses. I feel like I'm saying, I, I fear I'm saying too much. I, you know, whenever I feel like I wish I had a whiteboard, I, I know that uh, I'm saying a little bit too much, but I think it's critical that we understand this. That when Paul underscores Abraham's faith in the promise, he does that in distinction to the covenant that was made with Moses. So there are two kinds of covenants in the Bible. And this is how you can understand the importance of the promise and the importance of faith in the promise. Is there's another covenant. It's a covenant of law. When God makes... This covenant with Abraham, it's unilateral. He's the only one passing between the pieces. There's no if-then. It's only I will. When he later makes a covenant with Moses, there's an if-then. Go and read Deuteronomy. And God basically says, here's the structure that's being set up. Here are my laws. Here are my stipulations. If you obey them, I'm going to bless you. But if you disobey them... I'm going to curse you. And this is a basic principle that is woven into the heart of every human being. It's woven into creation. It's woven into our sensibilities. If you do good, you will be rewarded. If you fail to do good, if you make a mistake, if you perpetrate wrong or evil, you will be punished. That's what Adam faced essentially in the garden And it's what was codified in the Mosaic Covenant. Again, God said to his people, if you obey and heed my words, I'm going to bless you. If you do not and transgress my words, curse will come upon you and I will destroy you. God's covenant with Abraham is very different from that. In fact, it's the opposite of that. So it's very interesting that when Paul is describing the gospel, he says, I want to get to this place where Abraham believes the promise. And you will understand that your relationship with God, your justification, your salvation, has to be on the basis of faith, a faith that mimics the faith of Abraham. Again, we can talk about this much more in days to come, but there are practical ways to think about it. Because it is woven into the fabric of the universe and woven into the fabric of the human heart that you get what you earn, that if you do well, you get reward, and if you do not do well, you don't get the reward. It is very easy for that to seep into the way that we relate uh, to God. And so this law promise distinction I think is helpful on a very practical level. And, and, and here would be the question. 
Uh, Do you day by day live by promises or by laws? How do you understand your life? How do you understand your Christian faith? Does God love you because you obey his law or because you believe his promises? That's the question that kind of haunts Galatians chapter 3. How did God save you? Because you obeyed his law or because you believed what you heard? How does God give you the Holy Spirit is the follow-up question. Is it because you obey the law or because you believe what you heard? Evangelism Explosion was built on this, wasn't it? If you were to die tonight and appear before a holy God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Uh, how would you answer that? 99 people out of 100 say, I'm a pretty good person. This is the way I understand how reward is to be distributed. A friend of mine thought that a better way to propose, to propose that question, uh, because everybody is a little bit familiar with uh, Evangelism Explosion and knows the right answer, and you do not get into heaven with the right answer. But he posed the question in a very practical way. He said, does God hear your prayers because you're upright or because you believe the promises? This really becomes where the rubber meets the road, and it's hard to think about it. I've got it in the questions for reflection. Uh, discuss. Don't hesitate to email me. Uh, I'd be glad to talk about it more. But although the, the song has been corrupted a little bit in our day uh, into a conversion song uh, because it was used at the end of every Billy Graham crusade, um, Charlotte Elliott, the author, wrote it about her experience as a Christian, not her experience in coming to Christ for the first time, uh, but in her daily, day-to-day walk. Uh, as an invalid, actually. And you remember that verse, just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. And that sets us up for the last two verses. We have this. We have this, this promise of the unchangeable character of God's purpose as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'll get into Melchizedek, get into the priesthood, and into the curtain next week. Uh, But here we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope in this steadfast determination of God to fulfill his promises. Ten years ago, I did a motorcycle ride uh, with a friend of mine. We went up to Nova Scotia, and if you've ever been there, you know how glorious it is. And we were riding the Cabot Trail up over the top of Cape Breton Island. 
And at a certain point, I got so distracted, I got wobbly and had to pull over and take a picture. It was a cemetery, and you can Google this. It's the Pleasant Bay Cemetery that sits on the windswept northern coast of Cape Breton Island. And in wrought iron letters, black letters, over the gate that goes into that cemetery, it says, we have an anchor. And I I called my wife that night and said, I know where I want to be buried. Uh, Looking into it, I don't think the Canadian government will permit it. Uh, But this determination that God has to fulfill his purposes through uh, every high and low of your life, uh, through every disruption, uh, even with and especially when uh, your life falls apart, that's an anchor for your soul. That's a steadfast hope. I don't think I ever understood much about um, diving into the promises of God until I uh, had a crazy night where I was put up uh, in the uh, house of a little old lady uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee, and she said, I'm gone tonight, make yourself at home, I'm going out to something, I'll see you in the morning. And she had on her coffee table a book by Spurgeon called Faith's Checkbook. And if you've ever seen that book, it's just uh, a daily devotional that takes you through one by one the promises of God. Not all the promises of God, but enough of them to keep you busy for quite some time. Archibald Alexander, as I promised, has written a book called uh, Thoughts on Religious Experience. It's really a brilliant little book. Uh, if you want to get a hold of it, it's, it's, uh, it's psychology before the advent of psychology. It really understands the depths of the human heart. And he has one little section where he says, you know, here's what I would advise if you want to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. If you want to grow in piety, he has nine helpful things, normal things, you know, go to church, read your Bible, uh, pray, the normal kinds of stuff, be in fellowship. But again, this last one, he says, for your more rapid growth in grace, some of you will be cast into the furnace of affliction. Sickness, bereavement, bad conduct of children and relatives, loss of property or of reputation may come upon you unexpectedly and press heavily on you. In these trying circumstances, exercise patience and fortitude. Be more solicitous to have the suffering sanctified than removed. Glorify God while in the fire of adversity. That faith which is most tried is commonly most pure and precious. Learn from Christ how you ought to suffer. Let perfect submission to the will of God be aimed at. Never indulge a murmuring or discontented spirit. Repose with confidence on the promises. That's what Alexander says. Repose with confidence on the promises. Commit all your cares to God. Make known your request to Him by prayer and supplication. Let go your too eager grasp of the world. Become familiar with death in the grave. Wait patiently until your change comes, but desire not to live a day longer than may be for the glory of God. Uh, This is to live by the promises. And the writer of Hebrews here, the preacher of Hebrews, wants these troubled folks more than anything else uh, to have underscored and to be given strong encouragement um, on the basis of the unswervable 
character of God's commitment to fulfill his promise. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we are grateful to you because your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's useful, it's helpful. And I simply pray that you would give us grace to apply these things, to, again, let go our eager grasp of the world. Father, give us a room to recognize uh, where we're living by the law and not by the promises. Restore to us the joy of salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.